You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Today we have special guest John Lusk, the guy behind the Lusk Archery Adventures YouTube channel. Now, John's been on plenty of hunts across the U.S. and Africa and is a certified broadhead junkie. There aren't too many heads on the market that John hasn't tested or hunted with, and he loves to do tests, reviews, and comparisons of the heads that he has used. We first found out about John from some of his broadhead reviews on YouTube. They're refreshing because he knows what he's talking about and provides accurate discussion about test setup, purpose, and limitations. He shot everything from cheap Chinese knockoffs to made-in-the-USA $300 premium broadheads and isn't afraid to state what he likes and doesn't like. Thank you to Arrow Hunter for helping to make this podcast possible. Visit arrowhunter.us to find the best hunting saddle currently available on the market. And without further ado, let's jump into our discussion with John Lusk. Yeah, I'm sitting in my office. Normally, I have like about 25 mounts in here, but we're moving. And so I had to take them all down and put them in a storage unit. It's like my whole life is in that storage. (laughs) So I wouldn't be able to show you all my stuff and my jokes. (laughs) I kind of got hosed. (laughs) I've seen quite a few of it in your videos. Yeah, I've been following your channel, watching your stuff for quite a while now. I think it was initially some of your Bishop videos. Oh, yeah. You know, I've loved the Bishop stuff. I've gotten really close to Sean, you know, the the designer guy. I mean, we've we've talked a ton. That guy is an archery wizard, man. Like, I, he used to have his own shop. Do you know him well? Have you talked to him much? I've exchanged emails with him. Yeah. He's just, that guy's brilliant. I mean, brilliant. He's a PhD, you know, in education, but he's just, he had his own shop and does so much designing. And I just loved all the research he did with Bishop. I mean, he put more heads through more bison bone and animal parts because he lived right next to a bison factory or whatever it is. (laughs) And they gave him like free bones and and free animal parts, and he shot thousands and thousands of arrows. He, th- he, th- he thinks every broadhead and almost every arrow combination that there is to kind of come up with what he thinks is best. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I have the time. I feel like broadheads are designed based off of you know what looks cool and what you know marketing designers think is going to catch a hunter's eye versus what actually works. It's that true. Exactly right. You know, and some of them do look really cool, you know, and, and Bishop, like the Holy, or not the Holy Trinity, the uh, scientific method. I mean, that doesn't look very cool. It doesn't even sound very cool. It's not like, you know, kill them all or something like that, you know. Um, but man, is it functional? Does that thing work? Yeah, for sure. Do you have a technical background at all? Uh, you know, just that I'm a civil engineer. I mean, by by education. I got a BS in civil engineering. So, you know, that's my only technical background, if you will. Sure. Then I got a graduate degree in ministry. So, you know, I work as a pastor now. Okay, cool. Yeah. When I watch your videos on YouTube for the, you know, comparative analysis that, that kind of struck me because it seems like when people run broadhead tests, it's like you can either choose to have a test that compares multiple broadheads very well, 
or it's a test that's very realistic, but it doesn't really carry over from one thing to the next. Like people shoot actual animals, you can shoot the same bone twice and with the same head, same arrow setup and get a different result. So I think it's nice that, you know, when you do an analysis on broadheads, you actually provide some background and some discussion along with that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. You know, in archery talk, everybody's got their idea. Why don't you shoot it through this? Why don't you shoot it through that? <laughs> right. You know, I appreciate it. I'm one of those guys too, but but there's no perfect medium. But I agree, if you're going to do a comparative analysis, the one thing it has to be is uniform. It, it has to be consistent uniform or it's useless. You know, like you said, I mean, I've seen some incredible ones where they shoot it at bones and stuff, but you're right, you hit it at this angle or this one piece of bone, the blade falls off, you go, oh, that's crap. And then maybe a really chinchy, China-stamped blade makes it through it, and you go, man, that thing's impervious. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, you just can't conclude that way. Right. That's always been my biggest issue with, with broadhead comparisons is they try to use bones or something like that. And just like you said, it's, you know, each individual deer, the bone density within that deer can be different. So you're going to have different results, even with, if you use a domestic animal, it's all going to be different. So you have to use something consistently every time, even if it's not going to be, you're not going to shoot something steel every time, but that steel is the most consistent medium you're going to use. There you go. Yeah, I've, I've shot through so much different stuff to see what's a good test. Like I've used a ceramic tile. That was like shockingly tough. I mean, you know, any broadhead breaks them. But man, it chews up a broadhead. Like I, I just had no idea. And then I've used steel plate, 16 gauge, 18 gauge. And then I used steel flat bar, eighth inch steel flat bar. That separated the bishops from everything else. <laughs> like they're the only ones that really endure that. Although I gotta say that the Exodus did remarkably well with the flat bar. Like it only lost a little bit of a tip. But then, you know, concrete and dirt and I mean, I've tried carpet and foam and wood, every kind of wood imaginable. Yeah. Wood is kind of like bone in the sense in that it has a grain pattern to it, right? So if you hit, yeah. hit the wood one way, you get one result. Hit the wood at 90 degrees to that, you get a different result. Whereas like bone, the way that those you know collagen fibers align, you could have a, a splitting result on one impact and then 90 degrees, it could get totally jammed. Yeah, that's totally right. Yeah, and, and that's how it is with broadheads in general. You know, people like a broadhead that gave them their best animal. You know, whatever, like, killed their last animal. Oh, man, it's the best. And, and I'm glad it worked. But, you know, to, be, to really make a conclusion, you have to test so many different things because everything can be a fluke. And, you know, with wood, I, it's been interesting with single bevels to see, like, okay, sometimes in my tests, the air or the head would go in vertically and people go, Oh, that's why it's splitting it because it's rotating vertical. So then I just had to keep doing it until it hit horizontally because I couldn't really control that very well. Mm -hmm. And then when it hit horizontally, it split the wood just as well. It was really, really interesting to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. have expected that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting result. Yeah. Whereas like a three blade, it split the wood as well but it kind of held them together. Like, uh, you know, it kind of, they, they kind of just held the wood together. It's really interesting to see that, you know, I don't know the direct application, but I do know if I'm going after a big animal and I might hit a big bone, I personally, I want a Bishop single bevel. 
you think that has to do with the the single bevel being twisting, and as it twists, it's actually prying that apart, acting more of like a, a splitting wedge? Yeah, that's 100% what it is. And, you know, with that, see, with a uh, – sorry, my voice is kind of jacked up today. <clears throat> with with Bishop, they went through a million different designs of, of single bevels. Like, they, you know, all through Ashby's reports, and they experimented with different thicknesses, with different – bevel angles with different geometries of the point itself to see what is going to have the best bone splitting action. And then for that, they used, again, thousands and thousands of bones. And it was really interesting what they came out with. I don't know if you remember their initial, um, their initial one was the dicing drill. I've got one video on the dicing drill. It's shaped like a helix where there's like a thinner triangle and then it expands like a Simmons land shark kind of yeah. it expands into a, a wider triangle. Mm -hmm. So they really like that design. Then they started to realize that sometimes that thinner part of the triangle, all the torque and rotation is hitting that little point and it's getting stuck because it's not able to pry. There's not enough leverage and torque on the outside to really pry the bone apart. So they cut off that little tip and that became the scientific method. So it's just this triangle, but the less three to one it is, unlike what Ashby's saying, the more it actually pries the bone apart because the sooner it can get that leveraging effect of that broader width twisting the, the bone. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, the more flared it is like that, then the more effectively it can, it can crack that bone and it does it remarkably well. And another side effect of that, too, is that the head is overall shorter. A lot of guys, I think, have the idea that longer and a more gradual taper is better, but it's more prone to tip curl if it's longer. And it's not going to fly as well out of a fast bow, in my opinion, if it's longer. Yeah, it's all about surface area, right, for flight. I mean, the smaller the surface area, that I mean, the surface area of a scientific method, like 125 grain or 100 grain, I mean, that's about what it is like on a rage or something. I mean, a, a thick, uh, you know, a mechanical head, it is just so small. It's like this tiny little thing and only two blade. So it flies incredibly well. I don't know if you've seen um, the YouTubes by Matrix Bulldog. He shot with, he uses a crossbow and he shoots a scientific method. He shot at 326 yards, shot a balloon. And, <laughs> and it shows, I mean, he's got all, it's, it's like world record. It's a world record broadhead long-range shot and he used the scientific method for it i mean it just drills at 300 yards you go that's pretty impressive do you know what grain weight he used um i want to say he used 125 um but you know given that he used a bolt i don't know i, I kind of think it was 125 just by the size of it because you know the 125s are shorter than the 200s so they have less surface area yeah they would tend to fly a little bit better that makes sense yeah. But, you know, and, and then with the rotation too of a single bevel, what I also like about it, I've noticed on the entrance hole, I get like a round hole. It's really interesting. Even in a, in a pig and in a, in a deer, it's, it's rotating so fast that it makes a round hole. Now the exit is just a slit from my experience. Inside, when I've cut open the, the cavity, it looks like a grave digger has gone through it. I mean, it, it's like, because it, it twists and sometimes it twists the tissue like spaghetti on a fork and it just cuts a chunk of it out. And I saw some of the, the ribs that I hit 
break. They were broken instead of cut through. So they're kind of a jagged break. Mm-hmm. But you know that hurt. And and so it just I was really impressed with that. The blood trails, it's like in your other discussion. You know, the blood trails have been hit or miss. When I hit lungs really good and the blood comes out the nose and mouth, man, it's money. But if not, then I don't get a great blood trail. Although good hit, they die pretty quickly. Right. So it's kind of a, you know, everything's a trade-off, right? So if you're going with a two-blade head, will you always be going with single bevel or do you think there's any reason to ever go with just the standard double bevel style of broadhead, whether it's, you know, a machine broadhead or whether it's an expandable? That's a good question. If I'm going sing, if I'm going two-blade, I'm going single bevel. That That's what I personally want. Um, I want it to be thick. And I found, okay, you know, like a, a Rage or something like that, some stamped five cent blade, which is literally what these are costing, five cents. You know, and 99% per, of their budget, 95, 99% of their budget goes to marketing. And the head itself is like, I forget the total amount. You know, it's just, it's cents, right? Pennies. But you look at that and they feel so sharp out of the box. And people get fooled by that because it's not how sharp they are when they hit an animal. It's how sharp they are all the way through an animal and even when they come out of an animal. And most people say, well, I don't care if it gets destroyed, one and done. That's fine. I, I kind of don't either. I don't mind one and done. But what tissue did it not cut effectively on its way through? And so what I found in that is the edge integrity is even more important than the sharpness. Like sharpness is huge. It has to be sharp in and out. But edge integrity, if you get nicks in the blade, how sharp can that be? I mean, you get little nicks. That immediately is so dull. That's going to impede the penetration a lot more than if it just doesn't feel as sharp. So I think people get fooled going for a single bevel because it feels really sharp. They can be thinner. But I think they're a lot more prone to edge chatter, a lot more prone to nicks in the blades and, and, and a lot less clean tissue cut, and you don't get that rotation. However, I do think that with all that rotation, you're not necessarily getting as deep a penetration as you would get with a, with a double bevel. So, but, but for me, I, you know, I don't ever, I'm not worried about that. And so I get plenty of penetration with a little two blade. That's, you know, I shoot a compound. That's never my concern. And even if I were going for a big animal where I worried about penetration, like like a like Cape Buffalo, well then I'm definitely using double bevel because I want I want something that's gonna crack that bone open. Definitely using single bevel? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Single bevel. <laughs> yeah, dude, scratch that. Just hold to confirm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, because I want it to split that bone. I, I don't want a double bevel to just go through. Had I messed up a bunch before that? I wonder if I like no, screwed it all up. I don't think so. <laughs> Garrett's pretty Garrett's pretty good at catching you if you screw up, trust me, he catches <laughs> me a lot. But I couldn't agree more about the the blade angle and sharpness being misleading, especially like you said, it, once that blade gets a little curl to it, that adds additional friction to the head, which slows the head down. So instead of cutting through that tissue, it's basically grabbing that tissue, slowing that arrow down. Whereas with a thicker single bevel broadhead, it may not feel as sharp, but it has reduced friction all the way through that animal, whatever you shot. Man, that is so right. There are so few people that understand that. <laughs> like, it's just uh, so encouraging to hear you say that. So here's, here's what turned me on to single bevel broadheads. First deer I ever shot with an Osage Orange Shelf bow. 
I shot a good 150-inch eight-point at like seven yards, shot the deer, got zero penetration, and I was baffled by what happened. Neighbor ended up killing this deer during firearm season and called me and said, hey, I found your broadhead. So I went to look at it, and I was shooting. It was a Zwicky that had the bleeder blades on it. So it was basically a four-blade broadhead. And this deer was so close that when I shot it, what a lot of people don't understand is right up next to the spine, the ribs are only about seven-eighths of an inch apart. So what happened was with that uh, broadhead, it actually wedged in the ribs and there was no spreading those ribs in that self boat didn't have enough power to push, to break those ribs to get through. So I switched to a two blade single bevel and shot multiple deer at the same, same spot, seven yards close. And you could see that broadhead where it actually hit the ribs was perfectly horizontal with the ribs, but it twisted and went the path of least resistance into the deer. So I didn't lose all my kinetic energy trying to push apart those ribs or break those ribs. And that right there, a single alone was what turned me on to single bevel broadheads. That's cool. And that's what you shoot with, with a tribe bow or with a compound as well. Uh, right now I'm shooting a mechanical with a compound bow, but I'm moving all to single bevel. I wish more people, the Ulmer edge was a single bevel two blade. I still have some, but they kind of quit making them. They're supposed to come back or something, but, um, you know, hopefully somebody brings back a single bevel mechanical broadhead. Cause I would be okay with that. Yeah. But I always wonder is, are they thick enough to make a difference? Do you think so? Like, I don't, rotation? I don't. I don't think they are. Um, I think you have to get a really thick blade to get that rotation because you're trying to rotate something over, you know, a 16th of an inch or an eighth of an inch, basically. So there's not a whole lot of edge to create that rotation. Yeah. You um, know, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think on the point, if you could do it on the tip, um, like the ones I'm shooting are afflictors, they have a really thick tip on them. I think if the tip of those was single beveled along with the blade, that tip would help start the rotation and the blades, once they deployed, would help continue that rotation through. Yeah, that's a good idea. Or maybe it would be like the the Bishop Dicing Drill and it would end up wedging up. It might. You know, Sean at uh, Bishop had a design for a head that I was so excited about, and he was too. He took it to 13 different machine shops and none could do it. <laughs> and it was, did he ever tell you about this head? No. He used to release stuff, and I used to release stuff on Instagram about it, but it's called the MAD, Mechanical Animal Drill. That's what he called it, the MAD. <laughs> and uh, he didn't even want to share much about it because he, he's afraid someone else will do it. But it's it's one piece, and it was basically, he found a way to get incredible rotation with a four-blade head. And so it's never really been done effectively. He found it by mistake. And by, it's a long story, but I mean, it makes me shiver to see what this thing would do. And I mean, it literally just, just like drills through stuff, but it cuts so much tissue because it's got four single bevels and the way they do it, they have a special little thing they do. And the surface area on it was less than a thumbnail, like the whole surface area. I mean, it's just, it's the weirdest thing. Like it's hard. He released some pictures but then uh, they never could get it actually done. And I've tried to get him to make it in a component head because he could do it in a component, like an ATAC or something. But he's not into component heads. He's like, I know I could make money doing that. But he goes, I just have this passion for indestructible stuff. And so he does, he's not interested in a component head. I go, why don't you make like a, a mechanical head out of really high-end tool steel? Like you put your twist 
on an indestructible mechanical head. He's like, nope, I don't want to do a, you know, I don't want to do a component head. He's just, you know, he's just into hardcore. That's why they're doing these arrows. I don't know if you've seen the arrows that they're. I've seen, I've seen pictures of them and the alloy internal footers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, this modular design with this, you know, using the cold fusion carbon process. I mean, I've seen him shoot those into concrete walls where they bounce back and almost, I mean, almost hit him like boom. And they just, they're indestructible. They're guaranteed for life. You'll never break an arrow. Like it's pretty crazy, but you pay for it. I mean, that's I what you're about. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that's baffled me over the years is to see the price of broadheads skyrocket. And like you said, with rages, you know, they're, they can't be 30 cents to make a rage but they're charging uh, 40 something bucks for a pack of three i mean i understand like the bishops the iron wills these people that are machining them that's understandable but even them to some of them uh, iron wills are like 140 something for three or something ridiculous so yeah it's crazy you know people are willing to do it you know you sit there in the off season you're like Man, if I had that head, you know, and, and, yeah, I wouldn't have missed that last animal, you know, and it just gnaws at you. You just go, man, I got to get the best. And I just have that like addiction for everything. I kind of, even if it's not the best, I want like the most expensive looking thing. <laughs> it just pulls me in all the time. My hunting buddy out here in Utah is the same way. Every time you turn around, he's got another pack of broadheads sitting on his desk because he's got to try them. And he may never shoot them, but into a target once or twice, but he's got to have them. So he's got, I don't, I wouldn't even guess how many dozens of broadheads he has. That's me. I have a whole drawer. I mean, a big drawer that's just full of broadheads. And that's why I was doing some of that testing. I thought I'm getting ready to move and let me just like go through some of these. And so it was really fun <laughs> to get to shoot them. Some of them, the, the manufacturer comps me because sometimes if I'm curious about a head, I'll write into them and I'll tell them. Yeah, I've got over a million views on my YouTube channel and this many followers and stuff. And could you count me ahead and I'll, I'll do a video about it. So sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I'm still curious. So I buy it. And then, you know, I don't feel any pressure from them, but, but, you know, so it's kind of 50, 50, some of those heads I had to buy, like the solids, they're really expensive and man, they shattered. I mean, this thing, that thing <laughs> shattered. Did you? I saw that it? video. Yeah. Yeah. That's just like, I literally couldn't find it. Just broke into a million pieces that SB 30. I mean, it, I, you know, I knew that was resistant or it was prone to chipping and stuff, but I didn't think it'd be that bad, but then other ones, you know, I got comps, so it didn't hurt as much. shooting. <laughs> the well, SB 30 is, it's not a high end steel, but it's not a low end stainless steel either. There's cheaper stainless steels that are easier to make heads out of. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's kind of got a brittleness to it. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's expensive. It's premium. But I, I, that doesn't, like the design, and I love this, the cut, um, the swath that it makes, you know, the, the wound channel of like a 125 solid to go one and three eighths inch wide with a 0. 0.75, you know, three quarter inch bleeder. Man, that thing makes a hole. Like it's really nice, but it takes that weight. It makes it really thin. You know, it can't be a solid. It right. has to be a really big vent. And then the, the steel itself is way better than, you know, like 420 or something but it won't bend, it, it more just breaks. And that's, you know, that can be a problem too. I, you know, I find overall, like you were saying, you were saying about the, um, the thick, you use a, a two blade with your trad bow, but then you use the mechanical. You know, I find that whatever I use, 
I wished I would have used the other in that instance, you know, you know, like, okay, if I got a broadside shot on a deer, I want to, I'd prefer a big old mechanical, just, you know, in case I hit a little too far back, I want their guts just like piled out. Okay. Sorry to be crass here, but I was a big old hole. But if that thing's quartering toward me or quartering away where I need really good penetration, then man, I want a really good fixed blade to just penetrate like crazy. And I just like last, last big whitetail I shot two years ago in, in Missouri, I had this really nice 10 point coming up and it was quartering toward me and I was using a grave digger and I popped it right behind the shoulder and it, you know, it penetrated, but didn't go through obviously. And then it ran off and it stopped at 40 yards and that was its second mistake. And I put another one into the other side. And so it literally had two arrows, you know, I'm doing it like this, like two arrows sticking out of its, its two sides but there was not one drop of blood, not one. And it ran off and I'm like, what the heck? And I found it, it only gone about, I don't know, 60, 80 yards, but there's no blood because both of them were quartering. It made a good hole, but they have a, they have a small entrance. Right. And you know, a lot of damage inside, it died. But if I would have been dependent on the blood trail, I was sunk. So in that instance, I go, man, I wish I would have used a, an Exodus or a Bishop Holy Trinity or something like that. Then, you know, I'll get a broadside one that I just hit a little far back, happened on a javelina, little far back, man, the arrow, boom, zip through, an iron wheel, zip through it like nothing. I go, but I didn't find it. And I'm like, man, if I would have used a big old rage you know, on that, then that javelina would have been dead. So it's funny, you know, where's your, what margin of error are you preparing for? That's right. what's challenging. Right, you always see online, People are like, oh, I want to prepare for the worst case scenario if they're trying to back up a mechanical head by saying worst case scenario is a gut shot. But then on the flip side of that coin is what if you think of your worst case scenario as a shoulder shot? You, you missed four inches forward instead of four inches back, right? That completely turns the tables. It does. Yeah. And I've done that too. Yeah. It's, that's frustrating. It's true. Well, Carrie, two Two, carrying two different types of broadheads is something I've seen really pick up here in the past two years. You know, I've started to see people that do that. They'll carry a fixed blade and a mechanical in their in their quiver. They may have, you know, three of one and two of the other, but they have that situation where it's like, okay, I may have to shoot through a little bit of brush. I'm going to go to the fixed blade over the mechanical or vice versa. And I've seen that a lot lately as people carrying two different types of head in their quiver. I, I do that. I do the exact same thing. And, you know, I, I because I, part of it is I just can't decide. And I'm just, you know, so much, you know, different ideas. But then I make sure they can all fly really good. I shoot them out to 100 yards. If I can pop balloons pretty consistently at 100 yards, then, and especially if I'm not in whitetail. I mean, I never take a shot. I mean, my longest on a whitetail is like 58 yards or something like that. But pronghorn out here, that's a whole different animal. I mean, literally. And, you know, that's where you've you got to be able to shoot at 100 yards. So as long as the head can shoot at 100 yards, it's in my quiver, and if it's good. But I like to mix it up as well. And I'll have – I usually put some mechanicals in there. Like um, I used to use the um, what, the Omer Edge for this because no profile, right? I mean, those things yeah. fly incredibly well, as does the dead meat. That dead meat, like that thing flies. It looks like a field point. So now I put a few of those, a couple of those in my quiver – if I have like, even on an elk, a really long follow-up shot. If I have a really long follow-up shot, I'm kind of nervous, I'm huffing and puffing, the wind's blowing up on 13,000 feet or something, 
then I want to I want to use a mechanical for that follow up shot, and I will. So that I like the forgiveness of a mechanical for a follow up shot or a smaller animal like a pronghorn if it's really far. But then if I'm close enough, then you know, and I I can have a good shot. Then I usually use the the fix. It just all depends, you know. But I like having both in my quiver. Yeah, for follow up shot that makes sense. I, I suppose it'd probably be pretty tough if you're waiting to knock an arrow until you see what kind of shot you're going to get. That'd be pretty tough to, <laughs> you know, plan for that. It's funny. I was going to say that. Then the challenge is I got them all in my, my little tight spot quiver, and I'm like, okay, which one's going on first? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a tough thing to think about. My favorite compromise overall has been the Exodus. Like one and one quarter inches of cut, so you're getting a big cut. Those blades, I, I don't know what they do to them, but they're the toughest replaceable blades of any head I've ever tested. I've tested a million of them, not a million, but a lot. And that chisel tip is like, I mean, it's incredibly tough. So I like that it's so tough. It penetrates really well. And then I rarely get the, the blades nicked up. And yet I can get a big hole. They, they make a big hole. Like I used to use a slick trick. Okay, so slick tricks, I use a slick trick standard. You're getting a one inch diameter with four blades. So you're cutting two inches of tissue, right? One by one, you're getting two inches of tissue cut. But what I found is, one, the slick trick blades, I mean, that's a good head, don't get me wrong. They got really nicked up. And I, I knew they weren't cutting tissue as effectively. And that hole was just a little bit smaller. So I, I was killing a lot of animals. I took over 20 animals with a slick trick. But the blood just, it just varied. It, on any head, it'll vary. But it was on the low side. So then I went with the Exodus, just trying it out. And, man, my blood trails changed, like, I mean, like, radically. Now, I know it's all about where you hit it. But on par, I've taken over 50 animals with the, with the Exodus. Because that extra, you know, having a one-and-quarter-inch diameter, I found, even though it's three blades, the size of the hole is more important, I think, than having four blades in a smaller hole. Like, it's kind of weird, and I can't really back it up, you know, um, but I kind of use it, reduce it to the ridiculous. Would I rather have uh, an eight-blade little tiny head get shoved into my gut or eight inches of blade in a big thing? <laughs> right. I'll take the little one. So I kind of think, well, then I, you know, I, I want a wide hole, and the Exodus has given me the best balance of flight, penetration and cut size but you know there's others that fly a little bit better and there's others that are tougher that the iron will flies incredibly well but it's a little bit smaller cut um you know it depends on what animal i'm going after so you know i went on a mountain goat hunt i drew this mountain goat tag man i was so fired up this last year actually i didn't even draw it it's just um i i didn't you know i just heard i didn't get it Three weeks before the season, I got a call from the Parks and Wildlife saying, hey, somebody returned theirs, and if you want it, you can have it. I'm like, yes, you know, when is it? And look at my schedule. And it was, uh, was fourth-season uh, goat really close to my house, like an hour and a half away up in the mountains. And so I had to crash course in, in you know, studying the area and scouting, and a lot of guys in the online forums are really helping me, Rock Slide and other places. But then I was debating what broadhead am I going to use and, you know, with that thick hair, I thought it's so windy. I'm up at 13,000 feet, and it can be, I mean, so windy that I was going to go mechanical, but I was afraid a mechanical was going to get stuck in the hair because fourth season, and they got some thick hair. I mean, that's the, the, the longest their hair gets, the longest, you know, because it grows an inch a week as the season gets later. 
So then I decided I wanted a really good flying, super tough, kind of a smaller thing so it could penetrate. And that's when I used the, the Bishop Holy Trinity. And I put three through it. I mean, I literally, I put three, I mean, I shot it and it just walked off. But it went right through. It was a great shot. I think it was a single lung because it was kind of quartering away. But it would have died. But I was afraid it's going to die, you know, half a mile down the cliff. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to get it. So I was walking away and I put another one. And it went through, I mean, from the poop chute out the chest. I mean, it literally zipped right through the whole goat. And then it was still moving around. It was walking. So then I put a third one right through it. And then that did the job right there. But, but you know, I was glad to be able to get that penetration on an animal like that. They're not super huge, but they are really tough. And that hair can really mess you up. So I base it on the animal, too. I, I think the X is probably best overall from what I found. But, man, you know, elk, I really like the, the iron will. I mean, that thing penetrates extremely well. And, I mean, I've shot it through steel, and it still just shaves thumbnail. I, I cannot believe how it how well it holds an edge. Do you know what kind of steel A2. they use? They use A2. And so A2 is another tool steel that's um it's not as impact resistant as S7. Like S7 is, you know, through the roof, like on a Charpie V-notch score for S7. I don't know if you're familiar with the Charpie score. So yeah, you are so it's the test of, of how well it resists the impact. Yeah, you know. So you know the S7 is like about six times what 420 stainless steel is, and especially the kind that Bishop uses. I mean, they have a proprietary way that they temper it and so forth. They harden it. Well, the A2 is kind of in between. It's about it's about almost triple, like two and a half times as resistant to impact as stainless steel, typical stainless steel. So it holds its edge extremely well. And that's why it's so expensive because that A2 seal. And I know the guy that designs that too, Bill, he's become a good friend. And he's right here in Colorado. So we've hung out and he's a physics professor at University of Colorado. He knows his stuff and he's just worked for years to come up with, with what he thinks is the perfect design. And he decided to go single bevel with a little bit of a bleeder. And because of that, uh, blade retention, it still penetrates extremely well. And it's a relatively small cutting edge. It's one and one sixteenths inch by three quarter inch in the cutting uh, in the in the cross blade. Okay. But yeah, it all depends on the animal, you know, for what I use. One thing that was interesting when uh, when you're talking about, I guess, back to the Exodus versus like the Slick Trick, and how. Yeah having multiple smaller blades versus having fewer larger blades. Maybe what it comes down to is assuming they have the same cutting length, all things being equal inside the body, maybe they have a similar effect, but if the, the hole is smaller, you don't see as much of it on the exterior, maybe you get more internal bleeding, um, with a smaller hole, right? Cause I've, I've used the slick trick magnums and I've shot, I think five deer with those. And I'd say three or four out of those five deer, double lung hits, some of them were heart hits, on snow even, and I've had deer that not a single drop of blood. I, I heart shot a deer in December with one of those slick tricks and did not find a single drop of blood in the snow. Just tracked the tracks until I found the deer. It was only wet 60 yards, um, but what I found on a couple of the deer, I think two of them, specifically when I look at the entrance hole, there's like almost a film 
underneath the skin that had kind of covered up that hole and prevented anything from leaking out. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, have you ever seen that at all? You know, I've seen them close up. I've seen, matter of fact, it's funny with a slick trick. I saw a doe one time and, and I literally saw the hole close up. I mean, I, when I found that I could just see it, it was just, it was just closed. And, and so that's when I made my switch. I'm like, you know what? I just need, you know, a, a bigger, you know, a bigger hole that has more tendency to stretch. You know, if you can get that stretching of the hide working for you, mm-hmm. I think that's what like, a big two blade does is there's such a big hole. But then, you know, how the holes end up looking like eight inches long or something sometimes because that hide stretches. That's why the blood just gushes out, even though maybe they don't get the penetration Oh, they don't get the penetration, but you got that big one-sided hole that it goes a long ways. That's why I've liked the one and one quarter inch. Now, you know, I've tested four blade one and one quarter inches. Like the, um, I was able to get to test the new quad, the trophy taker quad. And that was really intriguing. That thing was a flyer, man. I could not believe it flew so well for a four blade one and one quarter inch, but it's, they have a, they have a problem with their blades. Now this was just their first run and they were remarkably dull. And so I, I told them that, and they told their engineering department. So they've delayed the release. I don't know if it's because of that, but they're going to be released in July now. They were going to come out in May. But I shot a javelina with one of those, and it, it penetrated about 12 inches in a javelina. That's like a 30-pound animal. Like <laughs> my Bichon Frise dog. You know, like, <laughs> how could I get you know such little penetration in that? And uh, so what I found is, even with a one and one quarter inch, I kind of prefer a three blade to a four blade because I just want two holes. Like I want my best chance. It's the same size hole, but I want my best chance at two of them. So if I get, you know, a big entrance, relatively big and a relatively big exit, that's a better chance. I think of better blood than one side with a two inch, you know, like a, a big mechanical, I don't know. And, or, you know, a smaller, diameter with four blades i'm just trying to find that sweet spot right well especially if you're hunting out of a tree stand when if you get an exit hole usually got gravity working for you there you go that's true i hadn't thought about that yeah you definitely want an exit hole with that yeah yeah that's interesting so you know with all the different animals that i've gotten to hunt it's always a debate which broadhead's going to be better for this one and you know i have favorites for this animal favorites for that animal but every year, you know, every, every animal is different, every type of hunt. Like you mentioned, being from a tree stand, that is a different selection process of a head than being on the ground. Or like I was saying, up in a mountain where you're getting these, these thermals and wind currents that are just blowing like crazy. Man, the smaller the profile, the better you are. Like, you know, it's the, it's the animal and the type of hunt, the terrain and all that. That all factors into what I like to use. And that gives me an excuse for buying more broadheads. <laughs> I like, I've got to try the latest, greatest, you know. I keep telling uh, Sean at Bishop, why don't you make a bigger cut Holy Trinity or a bigger cut scientific method? And the reason, and, and they did make a one in one half inch blood floods. I don't know if you ever saw that. They made a, a 500 or six. No, 600 grain, no, 500 grain, a 500 grain three blade broadhead with one and one half inch cutting diameter. Have you guys ever seen that? I've seen pictures one of it. Head, one head costs 350 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason they don't really sell very well. Although you'd be surprised how many people buy that. But I got to test the pack of those, which was really nice. And, uh, and man, those things, 
they do an amazing job. But the reason he can't make a smaller one is because the, the steel is just so expensive. You, you buy it in these, you know, cylinders and it's so, or, or you know, sometimes a cube, but it's so expensive to, to start with a big enough piece and then machine it down. And that's why he just doesn't want to, and he doesn't want to do component heads. So he's stuck and the price of a, of a bigger diameter block of the steel just puts it way out of the price range of practical sales. So, you know, that's why he sticks with one and one eighth inch, but I wish he'd do a little bit bigger one. And he says maybe one day he will. Would you, what would you say is your favorite? Um, so let's say you're in, you're in Colorado now. If you're in heavy timber going after deer or elk, maybe you have a different preference for each of those two species, but what would you put in your quiver for that type of hunt where you probably don't have, you know, the, the type of high winds that you'd get on the plains or up above timberline? You know, that's a good question. And there's a lot of good ones, right? I mean, I, I really, I would feel comfortable. I'd feel really comfortable with an Exodus. I like the size cut. I, I drilled my biggest elk ever with an Exodus. It was like at 40 yards and it was quartering toward me. I put it right behind the shoulder and it just, the, the arrow disappeared inside of it. And it ran like about 30, 40 yards and just piled up and died. Like, I mean, it was just such a quick kill. It didn't go through because it's just, they're so long and it was, you know, the angle, but it, I, I couldn't even see the fletching. I mean, it just disappeared inside of the animal. So, you know, I really like excess for big animals. I've taken wildebeest with them. I've taken, you know, all the kudu and, in all kinds of different planes game in Africa, they've done really well. But then I tend to, you know, like premium in case, you know, there is a longer shot in case I break out into the open. And, and so then I like using an ATAC. ATACs fly extremely well. Gosh, I mean, those things fly so well. I've used a Bishop Holy Trinity, but probably now the first one in my quiver for your question would be an iron wheel that I just, I put an iron wheel in there. And I mean, that thing, I know I could hit it anywhere and it's going to, it's going to go really deep. I feel comfortable with a, with a Bishop scientific method as well, but for elk, they can run so far and they run so fast that you have to have a blood trail. And I just, I, I just, I need to know I'm doing my best at getting a good blood trail. And it worries me a little bit sometimes with a single bevel on a really big elk, because I just worry, am I going to get enough bloodletting to be able to follow it? if I needed to a mile or so over the mountains. So I'd probably go iron will, but I'd feel comfortable with Exodus. I'd feel comfortable with an ATAC. I'd feel really comfortable with the Bishop Holy Trinity as well. And then how about a plane style hunt or a high wind scenario hunt? Yeah. So that, um, if I were using a fixed, then that would be either the iron will or the ATAC. And, you know, both of those are basically on a two-blade design um, because they they have two bigger blades and two smaller blades. They're very different, right, the ATAC and the Iron Will. I mean, the iron the ATAC, it's like the bleeders are wider than the, the leading blade. And and then it's just the opposite on uh, on the Iron Will. And so they're, they're just different designs, but they both are based on basically a two-blade being a lot wider than the other. And two blades always fly better than a three-blade. It's just the way it is. Uh, you know, I don't know, physically, that's just the way it is. And so just they're slightly more forgiving. And so I've had incredible flight with the ATAC and incredible flight with the Iron Wheel. I mean, like, those have been the most forgiving by far. So if I'm using a fixed blade, 
those would be the ones that I would use. Now for a pronghorn, I wouldn't be confined to a fixed blade at all because those things are small. And those, I mean, you could literally be, you know, my, my arrow gets to about where it's hitting. The sight is, as I dial it down, I use a black gold, um, I forget, was it pure 75, pure gold 75. So it's five pin adjustable. Yep. And so I can dial it down and I use the 60 yard pin for 100 yards. But after that, it starts hitting my arrow. And so I can't go lower. So then you just walk it back up, you know, where you, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you can walk the pins back up. So you go, okay, this one's like 120, this one's like 130, 140. And so, you know, for a pronghorn, you may have to do that, walk it back up and you want an extremely forgiving head. That would probably be a meat, uh, not meat seeker. I used to use a meat seeker, be a dead meat. I probably use a dead meat for that because those things fly just super well. Yeah, they're so compact. How could they not? Right. I mean, just look at it. That thing's going to fly well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Are you mostly shooting 125s then for you know, most yeah. things? And you know what I did? I, I switched. I was doing 100. Then I went for a while to injections. So everything was deep six. And I enjoyed the deep six. But I kind of was too much of a broadhead junkie to be stuck with deep six, even though the Exodus was in it. I loved it. Really, that's when I was starting to get into uh, Bishop. And I couldn't use their stuff. And I really wanted to. And so then I switched and I learned a lot about arrows from them. I liked the injection. One of the reasons was it was so thick. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a really tough head. And then Sean from Bishop taught me, he goes, you know, John, actually what he's found is the most durable arrows are a really light, thinner walled diameter arrow because they don't get that that arrow push like the you know when the arrow flexes they don't get that bend and i'm like really i thought i was going with the super tough arrow with the injection i switched to a hex and he's tested he said i think i've tested every arrow maybe it's not every arrow but the best combination for the most durable arrow he found was a hex with a five to seven inch footer about five to six inch footer of an aluminum shaft put right over the hex um, and then a 75 grain brass insert so I switched to that, and I started shooting into concrete and, and not breaking arrows. I mean, I shoot one hex into concrete maybe 20 times before it'll break. And so it's really incredible. So to, when I was doing that, because the shaft was lighter, to get to your question, I wanted more FOC. And so even though I had 75 grains, I just kind of wanted a little bit more. I had a 75 grain bass insert, but I went with 125, and the guys at the shop said, no, you're, you're going to be spined out. Like I was using a 330, but my arrow is pretty short, 25 and three quarter inch arrow. I have a 27 inch draw. So they were saying, no, 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 you're going to be, you know, you have the wrong spine. But, but I, you know, I, I extrapolated, actually, I was still in the good spine range and it's, it's been the most forgiving setup I've ever had. Like, it's amazing how much different at longer, longer range, hundred yards with a fixed blade head especially in a wind, I do with that extra FOC. It's crazy. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm pretty much in the exact same situation now as that I'm going through is changing all my arrows to a lighter front, lighter arrow overall weight and more weight up front. And me and Garrett have been talking about footers and everything else for like the past two weeks trying to define <laughs> the best insert, outsert footer system for this whole deal. But that's what I'm wanting to go to is – I shoot a 27 and a half inch draw and I think my arrows are like 27 inches, but I'm wanting to move to at least 150 grain point, but a lighter overall 
arrow for the same reasons you've talked about is you know that lighter arrow because there's not the mass in the back it's less likely to break once it hits um, so when that arrow flexes from impact on something it's not going to snap off it's more of that weight's going to be transferred up to that footer where it's going to absorb that shock basically yeah that, that's funny that's exactly and i mean i learned that from sean but then from my experience it it bore out yeah, i wrote down the footer that he he's tested a ton of different footers and he told me the best footer he uses with those hexes is an X7 Eclipse size 2014-7178 alloy, four to six inches. And so that's he just puts that and glues it on before you put the insert in it because right. it's got a ridge. And, uh, man, I, again, those things last incredibly well. But I really like the 125s, especially if the broad, if the, if the arrow, if the broadhead uses the weight in the geometry of the head. I'm not a fan of, okay, this has a bigger base, like a bigger washer, and that's what gives it the 25 grains. That's still good for the 125, but I'd rather have a beefier head. And so like the uh, the ATAC, I used to be, you know, talk to Dan Evans a lot when he was working with the ATAC. And the ATAC, he said, you know, get the 125 because they're beefier heads. And I put it into the broadhead. And the same thing with Bishop. They put it into the broadhead. They don't just use the same head with more weight. And so I like that. I get a little bit beefier head with that extra FOC. So it's it's durable as well as it flies really well. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm on the – it sounds like I'm in the path right behind <laughs> you for what you've done. No, we're like on the same wavelength, man. Even it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that conversation dipped into arrows and, and FOC. So I even was doing, I was trying to do a little bit of math to see basically how light of an arrow shaft I could theoretically get away with. So I was doing basically buckling formulas with arrow spines that should be way too light for my setup. But I was saying, you know, oh, what if I, you know, use like an internal footer that's six inches long? Well, then the flexible portion of the arrow is only this long. You do the buckling calculation, but of course, with the, the weight on the front and the back, it's not just a simple equation, right? So you'd have to test it, and then you're sinking in hundreds of dollars to, to test if these things are actually possible. And But have you tried internal footers at all, or have you always done external? Oh, I've only done external. That's really cool. I, I, I don't know much about internal footers. So the place that I initially read about them was, I think, through Ashby. He used wooden dowels, and he, oh, would, yeah. he would glue them... Uh, behind the insert and then he would taper them off so if you imagine um, the arrow flexes upon impact and it's not just like the back of an insert where it's square and creates a stress concentration if it's tapered down that arrow can still flex a little bit and acts kind of like a strain relief on the end of like your charging cable for your phone so it's not as likely mm -hmm. to break on the back side of the footer whereas if you mm -hmm. use like an external aluminum arrow shaft for a footer you still got that stress concentration right where that footer ends but i suppose oh, if it's yeah. long enough and it's far enough back on the arrow, then it's overall stronger still, even if it's not optimal. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool design. And that's kind of, I guess, what Sean is working on with his modular design, you know, to get that extra weight in there, you know, to have the core. I guess it's similar or got some similarities. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, you know, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the spine, too light of a spine. I think, you know, I don't know that much about the spine charts and so forth and how they come up with them. I mean, I understand what it is and everything, but I know from the testing Sean has done 
with a 600 grain scientific method. I mean, 600 grain broadhead. Have you seen that thing? I got a few of those too. I mean, these heads, like you go, man, I could put that on the end of a big oak tree, you know, like it's like a serious spear, 600 grain broadhead, but he shoots those with his hex arrows, like a 300, 330, or his other arrows, like a 300 uh, spine. And he goes, you know, everything says there's no way it's gonna fly. And he goes, they fly really well. It's just, it's weird. When you go out of the box, off the charts, it is just trial and error. You know, nobody's really done it. And I found it's, I don't know why, but they just fly really well. I think spine charts are one of the most jacked up things in archery ever. You just, you look at them and they don't make sense. And then, because when, like you said, when you start testing stuff and you start putting weight up front and really heavy heads and the same spine flies good from a 125 up to a, you know, a 260 or a 300, you're, it really makes you wonder, you know, how much there's actually to the spine chart. And then you can grab a another arrow, and it's the same way. And yet you see people shooting, you know, 250 spines with like a 125-grain point. And you're like, that's got to be extremely stiff because I can shoot a 400-spine a arrow with 300 grains up front in the same specs, and my arrow flies just fine. That's interesting. Yeah, that's I think it's just made up. <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe I, it is. I imagine. I imagine Easton has done a ridiculous amount of testing to come up with those charts. That being said, I would imagine that for people that are more or less within kind of what that chart intended, using hundred grain points, hundred twenty-five grain points, using standard eleven grain aluminum inserts, and just kind of like maybe an average bow, not a high performance cam or anything like that. I would imagine you're probably never going to go wrong with those recommended ranges. And for like the purposes of like an archery shop, getting 10 people set up with new arrows every day, it's a nice, safe thing that they, get, they can keep going back to. And maybe somebody would find that if they shoot an arrow that's three spines too weak, they would have danger of splitting the shaft and shooting an arrow shaft into their hand. Um, yeah. But maybe I would guess there's probably a large discrepancy in terms of where optimal supposedly is and where that actually that safety issue occurs and maybe what's more likely to happen is maybe you can go up or down a spine and you might see an effect on your overall accuracy maybe it's a half inch at 60 yards is the difference between going from one spine to another and you know kind of results-based tuning or results-based testing mm. but it makes it That's tough because it's so expensive to try out every combination under the sun that you'd like to I know. That's right. Yeah. That's it's time consuming and expensive. Yeah, I've got one, two, three, four, five. I've got nine different brands of arrows sitting here that are all different grain weights and different spines that I'm trying to set up for my traditional bow now. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. It's like, I just grab them and shoot them. And it's like, well, those three shot the same. This one's kind of funny. And then you shoot them at a different distance and it does something different. You're like, okay, so back to the drawing board. Well, then you got to do that for your compound too. I know <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. That's what keeps you going all year round, though. I love that. I mean, I love shooting all year round. I, you know, I used to not. And then the older I got, I mean, now I'm 54. And what I found is like, if I if I take a break, man, it's really hard to pull my bow back like <laughs> a month later. I mean, I'm like, I got to dial because I shoot at 73. Now I shoot a, a Hoyt Carbon Spider and I max it out at 73. And if I I'm not kidding, one month I take off, I can bear I can pull it. But it hurts. 
And so then I keep saying, next season I'm going to go down to 60. But then I just go, no, how about if I just keep working out? <laughs> I'm 13 pounds, so I'm still riding the, the heavy weight, but I just go, I'm just going to shoot you around so I never, I never have to work back into it. I'm just glad you can go to, like, Lancaster and buy single individual arrows to test oh, with. Yeah. Instead of having to buy a dozen arrows to find to shoot one and see how it works, I just go to Lancaster and scroll through and buy like eight of different brand arrows. And it's like, all right, send me those. Let's try them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that too. That's the best deal going. Yeah, thank God for Lancasters. What are you guys hunting coming up in the fall? You got any big hunts coming? I just found out yesterday my card got hit for a Utah mule deer tag, so I'll be hunting mule deer here in utah so yeah, good for you yep i uh we're gonna be moving unfortunately from colorado and so i mean i'm gonna still keep putting in i mean i got so many preference points for different things but i i had saved up for eight years to get a really good pronghorn unit and so i know i'm gonna get that even though they haven't released it yet but i am gonna do i'm still sticking with the mountain lion hunt that i have later on in the year i've just always wanted to kill a mountain lion. I know it's not like in some ways the most challenging, you know, cause they use dogs and stuff, but it just seems like so cool to like shoot a lion. <laughs> I just like that idea. And so I, I have it booked. I've been saving for it for years and that's in December. So even though we move, I'm planning on coming back in December for a mountain lion hunt. That'll be fun. Where are you guys moving to? Well, we, we're not exactly sure. For the summer, we're going to be in Louisiana. That's where my wife's family is from. Married a Cajun girl back in the day. We went to uh, to LSU together and met there. But uh, we're going to be going back there because we have several options uh, within the ministry. Like, just we're, we're going to kind of see which one is the best one for us. So we're going to give it time and go visit them and so forth and then choose. So I'm looking for somewhere that I can hunt a lot, too. <laughs> That's definitely in the criteria. Yeah, but, but where we'll end up. It's hard to leave Colorado. There's a number of species. I was really getting them. Um, I, I finally locked on to a goal. I'm like, you know what? I want to do the Colorado 8. And then there's the Colorado 9 and the Colorado 10. And so I only have like the Colorado 2, I think. <laughs> <laughs> An elk and a mountain goat. But I'm glad <laughs> I got those and uh, and a few of those. But but I, I never did mule deer hunt here. I mean, it's always elk hunting. And so this year I was going to go mule deer hunting and add a mule deer and then a mountain lion. So I'm like, you know, planning it out and then we get transferred. I'm like, okay, that stinks. But maybe over time, and I hope to retire here one day. We want to come back to Colorado. We just, we just love it here. Where are you guys? It's a great state. I'm in Minneapolis. Um, so, oh, you are? Yep, so I got, I got- the place to go. I got turkeys. I got plenty of whitetails. And obviously a bunch of small game opportunities. We got black bears too, but I haven't really hunted black bears a whole lot. I did go out to Colorado last year and I shot a mule deer. Oh, you did? Wow, yep. good for you. Don't you have moose in, in Minneapolis? Or not Minneapolis, in Minnesota? We do have moose. They've been on the decline for the past few years. They used to be a once-in-a-lifetime draw tag. They got rid of that a few years ago. Um, it's not quite certain yet whether or not it'll ever come back. There's, I guess, a few different... Uh, theories as to why the population is declining. It seems to be like a combination of disease um, and also the wolves. Those two things kind of yeah. seem to really be hurting the moose population. 
Yeah, I went on a moose hunt one time, an early season moose hunt, which I don't recommend, but it was in Alberta. And it was one of these special deals through bow hunting. Um, what's that company? Bow hunting. I don't know. They're like a, a an organization that plans bow hunts all over the world. Bow hunting safaris. Yeah, they're a good organization. But but it was with Chad Lenz. I don't know if you ever see Chad Lenz. He he does the uh, Tom Miranda's hunts. He's one of his main guide guys up there for sheep and stuff. But anyway, we went into Alberta. It was early season, sitting over uh, Mineral Lick, and the first day there, the the guide told me he said. Hey, we got a trail camera set up and we've been seeing these feral horses. They have wild horses, like real wild horses. He goes, they've been coming into the mineral lick. So don't think it's a moose and shoot them. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I think I can tell the difference. <laughs> and he goes, don't make any noise. I said, can I shoo them away? He said, no, cause they'll just like, they'll just, ah, you know, they'll like neigh and whinny like and scare everything away. So I go, okay. So he goes, don't let them see you. So I, I hear them come, I, I hear them come walking in and here they come two or three big ones and then one little one. And they're coming walking in. And then right as they get to the edge of the mineral lick, they just froze. And they looked in my direction and I'm like, oh no, they saw me. So I'm just like, I'm up in a tree. And I just froze. I was using a, an Exodus and I would have had my trail camera or I mean my, uh, my camera on the tree, but the tree was so big, I couldn't fit the ratchet strap around it. <laughs> so then I like a screw in kind after that. But anyway, so I couldn't film this. But what happened is they're looking at me. I'm just like quiet. Then I realized, oh, they're looking kind of like behind me. So I look over and dude, there's three wolves right under my tree that are right on this little berm. They're peeking over at the horses. They patterned these horses and knew they're coming in and they're getting ready to attack. And I see them, they're right below my tree. And then right then it was like, bam, it's on. And the, the wolves ran out and, and the, the three bigger horses kind of gathered around the foal, the smaller one, and they're kicking at the little wolves. And I'm like, what in the world? And then they pushed him out into this field. And then a big alpha wolf had flanked him. And so a fourth wolf, this big, like, badass looking wolf comes out from the field and it's like coming at him. And so they meet in the field and they drive back into the trees where I am and they're running around my tree. And I'm like full draw, like just trying to, trying to like chase the wolves around my tree. And then one peeled off and he walked right out into my mineral lick. He was kind of trotting. And I led him a little bit, 35 yards, and I drilled him. It was like, boom, and, and the arrow zipped through. I saw the arrow sticking in the mineral lick. And, uh, and I couldn't, again, I didn't film it right then because the tree you know, wouldn't fit. So I took my camera, and I started filming then. I still have the footage. And the wolf, it just went like, oof, and it, it hit it. And then it just starts walking off. And it went about maybe 50, it was 55, 55 yards, and it stopped. And then another wolf came and joined it. And it's like trying to encourage it. And I was going to like shoot that one too. But then I thought, now let me just let the first one die. Like, don't give it any more adrenaline. Just let it die. I wanted a wolf with my bow so bad. I thought that would be so cool because the guy told me, you're not going to see a wolf, but they're kind of around here. Maybe. And so, so then it, uh, the, the alpha went to the other side in the woods and it howled. Oh, I mean like a horror movie and it howled, it howled for one hour and 50 minutes. I literally find it. And I mean, it just kept howling. Sometimes I take a break for like 10 minutes. I think, okay, I'm going to go get my wolf. And then, ooh, I'm like, I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so I watched with my binoculars. I could see the red swath through this field of the blood. And then it stopped. And I'm like, okay, it's going to die there. And then I saw it get up and move. And I go, okay, it stopped there. So then I went out to get the guide. 
he comes out, we go back in. I told him I, I shot a wolf. He's like, man, that's better than a moose. That's awesome. And, and so we go back in we're following the blood. He goes, Oh, this isn't going to go far at all. It's, I mean, it's just swaths of blood. And then we find we're embedded down and then we're embedded down and then there's nothing. And I don't know if like that calling, if they're just like, come on, dude, you can do it. You know? And, and they like talked him into it or, or, or they dragged him off. I don't know. But it was like, very disappointing and, and surreal and cool at the same time. He goes, man, I never even knew they attacked these feral horses. We've all wondered. We know the moose are declining. That's what made me think of it, like you were talking about. But he said, we want them to, to take out the, the horses. And we didn't know if they were, but now we know they do do that, at least with the smaller ones. Isn't that cool? That was yeah. just cool to see that, man. That, that's, that right there is why I enjoy hunting. Most people would never see that. And it's the things like that when you're in the woods that most people, you don't expect to see, but you get to see, you get to experience it. To me, that's what it's all about is getting to see things like that. That's what I love. You know, you're out there, you know, I'll sit in, in a white tail country. I'll go dark to dark, right? That's like the challenge. And, and so you just watch everything come alive. Oh man, I just, I just love that, especially from a tree or a blind or something where they really can't see you. I mean, spot and sock is my favorite kind of hunting, but, but I just love watching when I'm concealed and you see what would have been, even if you weren't there. Like, I just think mm -hmm. that's kind of like if a tree falls in a forest, you go, yeah, well, I'm there to see it. Even though nobody knows I'm there, I can hear it. It's kind of a cool thing. I agree. I love it. I like just watching the squirrels, even like you see squirrels miss tree limbs and fall out of the tree and hit the ground. It's like, <laughs> the, to me, that's some of the funnest things in the world to see just because no, more, many people don't get to see that, but you just get to see these great things that happen in the woods that are just so rare. I do got one off the right record question for you. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your, your favorite, favorite archery, archery target? Since you shoot so many broadheads and you shoot so much, what's your favorite target? Okay. My favorite is a Reinhardt 18 one. I, I, I just, you know, I pummel it, but they're easy to pull out and I can go through a lot of different, you know, different sides and I can take it in the car. So I like that. However, if I'm doing long range shooting, you know, I say kind of humbly, that's not quite big enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. So I get at my archery shop, I get a huge block of foam, of styrofoam. It's like, I mean, it's giant. And it's just a cube and they're so cheap and they don't have them anymore, but they had them one year and I just built a handle on it with rope. And then I, so I shoot that. Well, then I blow it out. So then I came up with this really cool thing. I have a YouTube video on it on my channel, but you go to a, a like a Harbor Freight or some, some cheaper hardware store and you get those rubber foam mats that, that are interlocking that you can use like in a workroom or something to walk on. And they're like $8.99 for four of them. And you take four mats, stick them together, then you use zip ties around the corners. And then, then you use two big like U-hooks, uh, the kind you use in a garden to go over like the, the little uh, edging. And so you get two of those and you stick it in there. And then that I just put on top of my foam and I can use it so much. I put it on top of even like a bale. If I go to the range, I have a local range that the bales just are terrible and everything will blow through the bale. I walk out there with this. It weighs like six ounces or something. Stick it on the target face and any bad bale becomes a good bale immediately. Huh. And it costs like 10 bucks. So I use it for broadheads. It won't stop them in and of itself, but you can have anything behind it and it's going to stop them. 
and then you just you know when that wears out then i just get a different one so that's kind of, those are kind of some of my little hacks i know a video bobby's going to be watching after we get done with this podcast yeah you're dang right <laughs> yeah, yeah. hey go to my channel i'm gonna yeah. be i'm gonna be google fooing that as soon as we're off here yeah let's give a, a plug for your channel quick what's the name of the channel for everybody listening it's Lusk Archery Adventures. And it's just, it's a, it's a ton of hunting. You know, I can't do all my hunting because when I'm spotting stock hunting, that's really hard to film. So a lot of the hunting is when I'm in a tree stand or with a buddy, like hog hunting, where he can film over my shoulder. I did get the goat on film, which, you know, one of my buddies got to go up there. He hiked with me at 13,000 feet. He was my Sherpa guy. And that was really awesome. But, uh, but then I have a ton of different reviews, especially for broadheads. I mean, I shot probably a dozen different single bevel heads. I have like a the, the uh, broadhead battle and I have like round one is like the the lightweights and then round two is the light heavyweights and round three is the super heavyweights or something. But I, I tested all these different heads and there's, there's, I don't know, 60 or 70 different videos on there. So yeah, I appreciate people hitting it up and watching it. Yeah, it's a great channel. I, I watch it to see your hunts and then also for the information just because you're the guy who's willing to spend the money that I'm not willing to spend to try and test broadheads before I buy them. <laughs> you know, and, but once you do enough, then I find, you know, a lot of the companies, especially if they're starting up, they're, they're wanting the advertisement. Why wouldn't they comp you a, a, you know, a head? And so you can make a video and they, you know, get views on it. I mean, it's a wise marketing thing. So, you know, it's once you do it, you can do it more. And so that's why I'm trying to get into it where I don't have to pay for all the heads because it does get pretty costly to pay for those heads. Right. Yeah. Well, what's nice, too, is, I mean, you're showing everything. If a, if a head performs poorly, it's on the video. It's not like the, you know, oh, I'm not going to show this video. I'm going to either test one until it performs well or I'll send it back. But it's, it's all just right out there. So yeah, I really appreciate that. Sometimes they don't like that. And I'm advanced. I go, hey, you know, it is what it is. And he, like Sean, he doesn't care. He's like, a broadhead will do what a broadhead will do. And sometimes it does well. Sometimes it doesn't. Crazy things happen. He goes, you know, we can never, as designers, never get let our ego get too involved with it. You know, it's going to do what it'll do, and it'll stand on its reputation at the end of the day. So I, yeah, I love just kind of showing what happens. I kind of like it when they blow up. You know, it's just kind of cool looking, trying to show it in slow motion. <laughs> but I just, I like seeing what, what they're going to do. I did have one more question. Yeah. Um, do you know if the knockoff heads, if they're actually almost identical to the ones that you pay for the name brand for? Or do they actually use maybe like the same tooling, but a different grade of steel or something? It, you know, it's a good question. I, you know, there are, you know, the factories you hear about where they'll close down production for one thing like boots or whatever, and then they'll, you know, they'll run the same exact thing and then just put a no name on it. You hear that. The ones I've seen always have some design difference. So if I hold the two, if I'm holding a Rage knockoff and a, and a Rage real one or a Swacker knockoff and a, and a Swacker real one, if I'm looking, there'll be something like, like the grooving on the ferrule or something that tells them apart. But, um, man, they do well. I mean, the ones I've tested, now not well enough that I go, that's what I'm using. I use it for small game or, you know, kind of, you know, rabbit or something like that. But if I hunted more, if I, you know, got, if I had like hogs all over my house or something, I'd, I'd use stuff like that. But I like to use premium stuff when I finally get a chance to hunt. But, you know, in the testing, I was really surprised that these heads did so well on an archery talk. I read about them and 
people rave about them. I don't know for the steel if you can be much cheaper than what. <laughs> I'm not just saying it as a joke. I mean, they're literally, it's just stamped cheap as cheap can be. And so they're pennies. And so, you know, I think sometimes maybe there's a sharpness difference, maybe in the ferrule, but I've only seen it as slight design differences. And I think that's so they don't get sued or something like that. But, um, yeah, I think they're a viable option. They're, they're inexpensive, man. You get like 15 oh, I know. China Dermix, you know, or something. <laughs> China Dermix. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I like supporting the real company too, right? I mean, I'm a USA guy. And, you know, I, like when I look at Iron Will or, or Bishop, I mean, here's these just two dudes loving archery and they follow in their dream and they're investing a lot of their money and they could import stuff. You'd be surprised what companies that say made in the USA and all from the USA. If you look and you can find their shipping invoices, you'd be, you'd be shocked. Companies you know about. I mean, there's very few that really do it all. U.S. steel, U.S. You know, machine, U.S. everything. And those that do, I, I like to support them as much as I can. Yeah, sort of worth the extra price tag just for that. I think so. And I think even there's a... With the Pittman-Robertson Act, I believe a lot of those like China Dermics don't have to pay into the Pittman-Robertson Act compared to your American-made companies. So it actually doesn't go to support conservation, that 11% tax or whatever it is, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because it's not a American company, basically, they don't pay into the Pittman-Robertson Act. Um, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. So when you when you buy knockoffs for the most part, that money doesn't go to conservation support conservation. I see. I see. So yeah. well, eleven percent of a one dollar broadhead isn't nearly as much either. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's right. It's a valid point. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but there might be some that are, you know, seriously cheaper. There was one in that uh, mechanical. I just did a big test of like 20 different mechanicals. And one of my buddies on Archery Talk, he's like a broadhead junkie. He hunts all over the world. He found a head, a hybrid head on Amazon. That's like, a, he just called it the no-name head because it literally had no name. It's like hybrid broadhead. Only it looked really cool. Like it looked cool. So he sent me one. Man, it did really well. Like it was, like, <laughs> it was almost as good as the, uh, the muzzy hybrid. And, you know, and then there's like the Gravedigger hybrid, but nothing broke. I mean, it made it through all the different tests and it's just like a cheap Amazon no name. So I don't know where that came from. I kind of think maybe that got, you know, in production and then a company didn't buy it yet and it slipped out or something, you know, a name didn't get put on it. But, you know, sometimes you can find stuff like that that's just as good. Interesting. Yeah, usually when you see cheap stuff, the knockoff stuff, it actually is a knockoff of something that you could pay more for. It's very rare that you see a knockoff that is unique. Yeah, it's, really, it's, it's not a knockoff. It's just a, right. a cheap, good broadhead. <laughs> they didn't even try to come up with a name. <laughs> yeah, it must have been something got leaked out or something. Anything else on your list? I love talking about it. Man, hey, what you're doing is great. I loved your, your podcast about archery. I got to start listening to more of them. I really applaud what you're doing. You guys know so much. We we like to think we do. <laughs> I think we're on the same wavelength with a lot of stuff too. Yeah, it was really Just surprising. Watching once your videos we, and talking to you. Yeah, once we got to talking, how much we all kind of have the same thoughts on things. 
I know, isn't that weird? Different parts of the country, not reading the same book or anything, just like life experience and stuff, come to that same conclusion. Yeah, I, I like that. It's kind of validating, isn't it? Yeah, really. It makes me makes me think we're not the only two crazy in the bunch. There's other crazy <laughs> ones out there with us. Yeah, that's right. I think that's the case. <laughs> so 33 years. So last year, sabbatical is like a ministry break. So like an extended kind of break, vacation kind of thing. So we went to uh, to Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Montana, and many other places. Did a big road trip, and I hunted everywhere I went. It was like off season. But in Texas, they have javelina, they have hogs, they have some exotics and stuff like that. Oklahoma has hogs. I made uh, in Montana. I got in there at at turkey season. So I had like this three-month killing spree all across America. It was like awesome. And my wife would go antique shopping while I would go hunting. It was like the best setup. I just just loved it. It It was really cool. Went up to the Grand Tetons and, you know, just saw some beautiful country up there. Did you have a favorite state? I guess you said Colorado would be the place you wanted to move back to. Yeah, well, that's largely because our kids are here too. You know what though? My favorite place that we went was Montana. Dude, Montana. Gosh, I mean, I thought Colorado was pretty, especially the area we were in, Northwest Montana. We were right up at the border where Glacier uh, National Park is. And uh, man, that that place was just stunning. And Kalispell and those areas, I mean, mountains all around you. And, and, uh, and then you got to go turkey hunting. That was one of my favorite hunts ever. I was going after this one turkey and he was so wary. And uh, I'd see him on the roost in the evening and in the morning, but he just wouldn't come into my deeks and my setup. And so I had one more day and I thought, okay, I'm going after him. And I saw him and I just ran way ahead and, uh, and cut him off, but he was walking with a group of whitetails. He's really smart. It's six whitetails and then this one big old tom, and they're like hanging out together. And so you got the scent and the eyes, you know, both, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, that's not fair, you know? And so, so I kept like trying to cut him off. And at one point I came to full draw at 60 yards, but I'm like, no, I think I can do better. And then I finally got to this, I belly crawled up this canyon, and I came up to the top and there he was strutting at 40 yards. And it was just so exciting. He turned, he faced me and I got up on my knees out of the, out of the ravine and drew and, and I shot him. It kind of hit low. I was using a kill zone. That's one of my favorites for turkeys, uh, NAP kill zone, because it doesn't penetrate too great, but it really opens up well and it's very durable. So it, it does really good for turkeys, but it flew off and, and I couldn't believe it flew or kind of ran off. And I couldn't find it. I'm looking all over. And then I and then I saw it under a tree and it's looking at me. And I'm like, first I thought it was a piece of wood. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a turkey. And so it was about 15 yards away, and I didn't want to use another broadhead. So I had a I had a um a judo point. And so I put in my for, for like a little small game, the prairie dogs there. So I put in my judo point. And I pasted it right between the eyes. I got a video of that because I had a (laughs) – and then I had it on YouTube and then it got like age-restricted because it's like uh, (laughs) – the coolest shot. And it shows this – you got to look at it. I have the picture on my Instagram page too, but there's literally this judo point right between the eyes. And I took a good close-up of it. It just – it looks surreal. And, but it, it didn't go far, let's just say. It just flattened <laughs> I think it was just nerves. It died. But I always wondered if you could kill a turkey with a judo point. And yes, you can. 
<laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to keep in touch. Yeah, I would really like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely I, gonna have to have a part two, I'm sure. Yeah, I would. I would like to do that. We got to compare notes as time goes on, and I'll keep listening to you guys and propping you guys up as well with a lot of my buddies who would really like to listen too. And I wish you well and good luck. I hope it really grows and does super well. You kind of look like Jimmy Fallon. People tell you you look like Jimmy. Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't heard that one. With the, with the headset on, you kind of do. <laughs> I gotta take a picture and send it in. They'll put it on the Tonight Show, maybe. You know, he, he kind of, like he'll wear what they're wearing in the, in the show if you send it in. He makes himself look like the people that you thought looked like him. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for all that you're doing. Hey, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, my honor. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. All right. Take care. So I think going into this podcast, Bobby and I both knew that John had a lot more experience with different brands and models of broadheads than we did, and he certainly didn't disappoint. What we both thought was particularly interesting was that despite all the data he's collected, there still was no one single answer for the one broadhead to rule them all. There are trade-offs with everything, and certain scenarios call for certain types of broadheads. I really hope you guys got as much enjoyment and knowledge out of this episode as we did. If you guys would be so kind, please head on over to iTunes and give the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network a five-star review if you feel we deserve it. We're also still collecting questions for a Q&A podcast, too. I'm not sure if that'll air on our next episode or not, but we've gotten some great questions and feedback on social media, and we'd really like to share some of them with everyone in addition to just answering them through the comments and messaging. Be sure to check out Lusk Archery Adventures on YouTube and Instagram as well, and thanks for listening in.